Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 97, Moving Atoms, where we hear about making patterns atom by atom on surfaces. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. We begin this episode by recalling one of the great physicists of the 20th century, Richard Feynman, and his December 1959 lecture to the American Physical Society in Pasadena, California, called Plenty of Room at the Bottom. In the lecture, Feynman discussed the interesting possibilities that ultra-miniaturization afforded modern science and engineering. He discussed the recently discovered method of storing information in cellular DNA and perhaps applying it to computers. Toward the end of his lecture, he posed the question, what would happen if we could arrange the atoms one by one the way we want them? It seemed like a rhetorical question at the time. The transistor was only beginning to displace the vacuum tube, and integrated circuitry was only beginning to be contemplated. But now we reach a point in chemical history where such a question was able to be answered. In Feynman's time, the word nanotechnology wasn't invented yet. That would have to wait 15 years until Norio Taniguchi, a professor at Tokyo Science University, presented a paper at the Japan Society of Precision Engineering in 1974. His paper was called On the Basic Concept of Nanotechnology, in which he defined the term as Quote, nanotechnology mainly consists of the processes of separation, consolidation, and deformation of materials by one atom or one molecule, unquote, which is really what Feynman proposed back in 1959. The prefix nano comes from the Greek word for dwarf, but now has the technical meaning of one billionth, which is obviously very dwarf-like. And then we move forward yet another 15 years. One of the last major chemical events of the 1980s occurred on November 9th to 10th, 1989, at IBM's Almaden Research Center in San Jose, California. And it would have made the ancient Greek philosopher, the atomist Democritus, weep for joy. That's when Donald Eigler and Erhard Schweitzer spent 22 hours using a scanning tunneling microscope to move 35 xenon atoms around on a cryogenically cooled nickel surface. Let's hear about the technique and then what they created. They took a crystalline piece of nickel metal and cooled it down to the ultra-low temperature of minus 269 degrees Celsius. In this way, the atomic motions of the solid crystal would be very minimal, so any new atoms on top of the surface wouldn't bounce off or skitter away. 
Then they sprayed xenon atoms at the cold surface. Xenon is a heavy atom near the bottom of the periodic table, and specifically, it's one of the noble gases, which hardly react at all with other elements. So, spraying these almost inert atoms at a cold surface meant that the xenon atoms would be really unlikely to do a chemical reaction with the nickel. The atom would merely sit on the surface of the nickel. Then they used the tip of a scanning tunneling microscope to attract particular xenon atoms and drag them across the nickel surface. Recall that the atomically sharp tip of the scanning needle in the STM will attract other atoms at the correct distance to those atoms because of the quantum effects called the van der Waals force. So that's what Eigler and Schweitzer did. They laboriously moved their STM tip to pull individual xenon atoms around on the nickel surface and deposit 35 of them to form the IBM logo, the tiniest recognizable artificial image ever made. And so Feynman's question was stunningly answered in November 1989, almost exactly 30 years after Feynman posed it. It can be done. The pair of IBM scientists wrote up their results with their STM image, and it was published in that journal we've mentioned many times already, Nature, in April 1990, under the title, Positioning Single Atoms with a Scanning Tunneling Microscope. Of course, the demonstration doesn't actually do anything practical, except exist as an advertisement for IBM. It did demonstrate that nanotechnology, as suggested by Feynman, was possible, and it showed that you can deliberately adjust surfaces atom by atom. It was a first step, and let's move forward in time. The next advance occurred four years later in 1993, once again with Donald Eigler and other colleagues, Michael Cromie and Christopher Lutz. Here we take a slight detour into undergraduate quantum chemistry, the study of how quantum mechanics affects atoms and their chemical properties. One of the first problems that juniors, that is, third year out of four American undergraduate years, chemistry students, might encounter in their physical chemistry class dealing with quantum mechanics is the so-called particle-in-a-box problem. Because we cannot just extract a subatomic particle and subject it to tests outside of the universe, we do a little theoretical exercise in the same way that Einstein imagined how light waves or gravity affect things. We imagine that we take a prototypical particle, a single electron with a known mass, and merely confine it to a volume, a box, and see what properties it might have. Electrons, as de Broglie realized in the 1920s, are both particles and waves simultaneously. How would an electron inside such a molecule-sized box behave? This exercise is a way to show students how the wave properties of the particle, the electron, dominate and dictate the various energy levels, 
the shape of the wave itself, the wave function, and so on. We all know it's a mind experiment to mimic some aspects of an electron's properties, but we also know that we cannot actually see this in action in a real atom or molecule. Except we return to the IBM Crew's 1993 experiment. This time, Eigler and friends took a copper 111 surface, one of the crystal faces of copper, as I mentioned in the surface chemistry episode a bit back, and again cryogenically cooled it like the nickel surface to keep atomic vibrations down to a minimum. Then they added 48 iron atoms and used a scanning tunneling microscope to pick up the iron atoms and move them into a nanoscopic circle. The diameter of the 48 iron atom circle was 14 nanometers, 14 billionths of a meter. Using the scanning tunneling microscope to probe the electron distribution inside the circle, they found concentric rings like a target bullseye or more accurately an ultra small interference pattern. It turns out that the copper's surface electrons were held inside the iron ring and acted like the famous quantum particles confined to a box. This was an actual visible, if you grant that STM images are really visible, demonstration of a real particle in the box problem the first time it was demonstrated in real life. In a picturesque way, the IBM researchers titled their paper, published in October 1993 in the journal Science, as Confinement of Electrons to Quantum Corrals on a Metal Surface. That is, they referred to the 48 atom iron ring as a quantum corral, a pen capturing some electrons inside, like cattle inside a fence. Yee-haw! The next step with the scanning tunneling microscope happened five years later in 1998. Wilson Ho, a professor at Cornell University specializing in surface science, again took a copper surface, but this time he chose the 100 crystal face. Instead of individual atoms, he dropped whole molecules on the copper surface. The molecules were acetylene, C2H2, that is, two carbon atoms connected with a triple bond, and each carbon atom was also capped with a hydrogen atom. But he also took deuterated acetylene, that is, acetylene in which the hydrogens were now heavy hydrogens with an extra neutron in each nucleus. Chemically, the deuterated and regular acetylene atoms. Chemically, the deuterated and regular acetylene molecules act just about the same, but there are slight detectable differences. For example, the extra mass of the two heavy hydrogens can slow down the rate of reaction involving the molecules. Or in this case, the extra mass of the heavy hydrogen atoms slows down the vibrational rate in the molecular bonds. The structure of the copper 100 surface is that of atoms in a neat square array. 
Apparently, the acetylene molecule likes to lie down on the diagonal between two copper atoms at opposite corners of a square. The hydrogens normally make a nice linear molecule if acetylene is a gas, but here angle upward away from the surface at a 60 degree angle. A paper by N. Lorente and M. Persson at Chalmers Göteborg University in Sweden from 2000 talks about this. But we will talk more about surface chemistry in a future episode. Ho was able to place specific molecules on the copper surface, and so he could directly compare their activities on the surface. The comparison was done using the atomic tip of the scanning needle point. Then he could move the scanning tip over specific molecules and see how much electron tunneling current existed from the tip to the molecule. At 358 millivolts, he saw the carbon hydrogen stretch in the regular acetylene. For the deuterated heavy acetylene, the carbon hydrogen stretch was only 266 millivolts. Lower voltage means slower vibrations. Exactly what you'd expect for heavier atoms. In other words, Ho was doing vibrational spectroscopy, but not on a flask, test tube, or cuvette of umpteen zillions of molecules, moles of molecules, or what we call in the chemical world an ensemble. Instead, he did vibrational spectroscopy on individual molecules. By doing this, you can now identify those blobby STM atoms and molecules. So now let's move forward another decade into the 21st century. As we get closer and closer to the present, this will happen more and more often in this series. We recall that crystal structures and molecular structures were solved in the 20th century using X ray crystallography. That is, you zap your crystal, or as good of a crystal as you can get, with X rays and take a photograph of how the X rays are bent or diffracted around the atoms in the crystal. From the multitude of dots in your X ray image, you back calculate the original structure. But this isn't directly seeing the structure. It's still more of an indirect, less obvious way of getting at the structure of your chemical compounds molecules. Once again, IBM, the original source of the scanning probe method, produced results. This time, Leo Gross at the IBM Research Zurich Labs was interested in getting direct chemical information from surface scanning. As we've seen, surface probe microscopy just shows little blobs for atoms or molecules, which are generally indistinguishable except for very stringent studies like Wilson Ho's group. What kinds of information would be valuable to a chemist looking at surfaces? I hinted at what was to come in episode 84, where I said that, under the right circumstances, The scanning tip can image itself or even image certain orbital lobes. If you recall from 1930s quantum chemistry, one advance quantum mechanics gave for describing 
how the electron's probability snaps around molecules like a three-dimensional rubber band includes the idea that there are places where the electron is likely to be in an energy level, but also there are places where the electron cannot be. These non-allowed places are the nodes where the electron's probability of existing is zero. Gross was able to see, to visualize in a scanning tunneling image where those molecular orbital nodes are, instead of just calculating them. It turns out that to do this, you can't just use any old scanning probe tip. You need a tip with a known atom structure so that you know the electron energy levels and orbitals at that very apex of the tip. But that's a really, really tough thing to do. So instead of building such a metallic tip, Gross placed a single carbon monoxide, CO, molecule on an existing tip. The CO molecule itself becomes the tip of the scanning needle. Gross did this by moving a needle over an inert metal surface, often copper, as we've already heard of, finding a carbon monoxide molecule on that surface, and then driving a voltage, an electric pressure, if you like, between the tip and the metal surface. You choose the voltage so that the highest level molecular orbital of CO can be reached, and then electrons in the tunneling current enter this molecular orbital. The orbital happens to be a 2-pi anti-bonding orbital. Think back to our brief encounter with molecular orbital theory. Such an anti-bonding orbital has a node between the carbon and oxygen atoms, and another node down the length of the molecule where the electrons cannot be, for a total of four orbital lobes. If you put electrons into the anti-bonding orbital, this weakens the overall bonding from the carbon monoxide to the metal surface. Gross used carbon monoxide because we know the molecular orbitals it contains. Thus, the CO molecule breaks off the metal surface and hops onto the tip of the needle. The CO molecule sticks directly downward from the needle, and the 2-pi antibonding orbital is the molecular orbital sticking out from the needle. This method kind of worked, so that Gross and colleagues could tell the difference between CO molecules and O2 molecules on the metal surface. But the metal surface electrons, which have orbitals, were still not visible. Their next method was to deposit a kind of intermediary layer on the metal surface and then put your molecule of interest on top of the intermediary layer. They tried this with a salt layer, such as NaCl. This method can separate the molecule's orbitals on top from the metal layer underneath. This worked a bit better. By choosing the tunneling voltage to the molecule on the surface, Gross's group could now visualize the overall electron's charge around a big, flat organic molecule, such as pentacene, which is five benzene rings fused together. In a moment, or actually more than a moment's work, of whimsy, the IBM scientists Susanna Baumann, Ileana Rao, 
Christopher Lutz and Andreas Heinrich created the world's smallest movie set. Rather than taking a snapshot of positions of atoms with a scanning tunneling microscope and calling it a day, they took about 250 sequential images of these carbon monoxide molecules sitting on a cryogenically cooled metal surface to make a movie. If you have heard of Aardman animations and their Wallace and Gromit stop-motion films, or Claymation from the 1980s and 1990s, and their stop-motion films, this is yet another example, but single molecules magnified 100 million times. The IBM group placed their CO molecules in particular positions, took an STM image, moved several atoms slightly, took another STM image, and moved a few more atoms a bit. Their film from 2013, which you can find on the internet, is called A Boy and His Atom, in which a stick-figure boy bounces a single CO molecule around. In the film, only the oxygen atoms are really visible. In our next episode, I tell of my own research in surface chemistry, which was published in the early 1990s. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. 